You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. 1 through 17 in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. For our text this afternoon, we turn our attention to the word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We continue to learn what we confess in the various articles in the Apostles' Creed, and this afternoon we come to the article about the Lord Jesus Christ and that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So the first question reads, what do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus, he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Christians, the Bible stands at the very center of our faith. As the Belgic Confession states it, Scripture, the Bible, 
is given for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith. And what the confession is trying to explain there is that this comprehensive sense in which our faith is built and nourished by God's Word. And so, perhaps only for that reason, you can understand why the Bible is is constantly under attack. If it's so vital to the Christian faith, if there is to be an attack upon our faith, the Bible will certainly receive a lot of attention. Sometimes this attack is overt, it's outright. It's by those who, who actively try to undermine what Scripture claims to be true. They'll say it's not true. It's simply not true. What the Bible says is true. And sometimes it's more subtle, this attack, and involves introducing changes to the way that the church understands and receives Scripture. Sometimes the attack is is unconscious. Sometimes it even almost springs up within us as we simply trust, instead of trusting God's Word, we, we trust our own opinions or experiences more than what God's Word reveals to us. Well, as we come to Lord's Day 14 this afternoon, we come to a doctrine that has been thoroughly attacked and maligned by unbelievers. And it's even been abandoned or changed by those who, at the same time, claim to profess the Christian faith. This Lord's Day deals with the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And it has been a doctrine that has been roundly attacked. When we talk about the virgin birth of the Son of God, His birth from Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a woman who had no sexual relations whatsoever, we're dealing with an essential doctrine. We're dealing with an essential doctrine. The, the Christian faith is, is so much wrapped up in this doctrine. It's why it's included in this confession, the Apostles' Creed, as well as the Nicene Creed, which we could also read together, because it's such an essential and important doctrine, but it's it's one that's only testimony is given to us in Scripture. The only testimony about this doctrine of our faith is Scripture, the Bible. You, you can't look back in, in some other history book and, and find proof there. You, you can't look at the birth records of the town of Bethlehem or of Nazareth or anywhere and find that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We believe that God became flesh and made His dwelling among us because God's Word tells us that. And so with Scripture as our guide this afternoon, let's consider the birth of our Lord. We'll do so under this theme, that the Son of God was born for us and for our salvation. And we'll consider the reality of His virgin birth. Scripture testifies to it. We'll consider the result of His human birth. So focus on the fact that He was born as a man, a human being. And finally, we'll consider the benefit of His saving birth. What does it have to do with us? So the reality 
of his virgin birth, first of all. So, it happened. And it happened as Scripture testifies to it. It happened that there was a young woman, a Jewish woman, a virgin. Her name was Mary. And she was betrothed, is the word that we often associate with this. Engaged is a word that doesn't quite fit. She was betrothed to Joseph. Now, the stage of betrothal was stage two in the Jewish three, the, the three stage, three stages of marriage, you might say, or marriage preparation that the Jewish people had. Betrothal was the last stage before married. And so, so Joseph and Mary were pledged to be married with each other. And they would do many things in common. But they were not yet husband and wife, and so they would not yet have had sexual relations. They wouldn't be intimate in that way with each other yet. And of course, this is why, as Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew makes clear, this is why Joseph was so surprised when Mary became pregnant. Because there's, as we normally understand it, only one way to become pregnant. And Joseph, as he knew, had had nothing to do with this. So he was betrothed, but he could still, there was still a way out for him. A a divorce of sorts, a divorce even before marriage. There's two ways he could have done that. He could have been very public, accused her of being an adulteress, or he could have gone the private route and, and simply annul the betrothal, leave, and leave Mary alone. And this is what Joseph planned to do, we read in the Gospel according to Matthew. Joseph was a righteous man. He didn't want to bring public humiliation and disgrace upon his beloved, but, as far as he could tell, unfaithful fiancé, betrothed. This is why the angel then came to Joseph. Because Joseph clearly was was confused, not, not on a human level, Of course, if we were in his shoes, we would see things exactly the same way. But that wasn't what was going on. That's not what had happened to Mary. And that's why the angel came to him to tell him what was really going on. Mary had not been unfaithful, the angel says to him in a dream. But rather, what is conceived in her, the angel says, is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And so in that short statement, the angel reveals the mystery of the virgin birth, the incarnation, the coming into the flesh, the becoming human of the eternal Son of God. So what happened? Well, Matthew describes what happened. Luke gives slightly more Explanation. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1 and see what Luke says there. Matthew is very short. Luke says a little more in Luke chapter 1 at verse 30, page 1588 of your pew Bibles. Here the angel is speaking with Mary, who, as verse 29 says, was 
greatly troubled and, and wondered what the, what the greeting of the angel meant. And we read in verse 30, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are, give, are to give him the name Jesus. Now at this point, nothing strange or, or different out of the ordinary is going on, other than the fact that she's hearing this from an angel. But then he goes on, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So this son will be a king on the throne of David. But then Mary says, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And again, the angel reveals the mystery of the virgin birth. It will be a conception by the Holy Spirit. In what way? We don't know. Luke is a doctor, but he doesn't give us the details. Very likely he doesn't know the details. But, It will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, yet, as the angel had revealed, born of the Virgin Mary. And so in those few short words, the angel unravels the blessed mystery of the virgin birth. How it will be that the Son of God, the Mediator, the Savior, will come into the flesh in fulfillment of God's promises. So the one born will be called the Son of God. And God's purposes are revealed. But we should realize as we consider what's going on here, that from our perspective, this is a most glorious announcement and event, as it later happens. But for the Son of God himself, what is this? This is an act of humiliation. An act of humiliation. Not humiliation is in something that he's going to later regret. If we, if we say that we're humiliated means we, we regret what we've done. Not in that way, but in the way of making himself low. Making himself low. We read from Philippians chapter 2 before we confessed our faith this afternoon where Paul states that although Christ was in very nature God, he humbled himself. He humiliated himself is the word in the original that it says there. He made himself low. He, the eternal Son of God, became a man. And not only a man, but a servant. And not only a servant, but a sacrifice. And so his birth was his first act of humiliation, his first act of coming down. And the last act of his humiliation was his burial in the ground. And so from the beginning of his life till the end, his life was one of lowering himself. The Son of God, who lived with God from all eternity, clothed himself with human flesh, but put off his glory, clothed himself with human flesh clothed himself with humility and humiliation. But from our perspective, this is a most glorious act. Why? Why is the humiliation of the Son of God, where he was at the right hand of God, 
Why would it be reason for us to praise and glorify God that he became a man, and not only a man, but a servant, and not only a servant, but a dead one? That he died? I praise God for that. Because he did all this for us and for our salvation. Let's spend some time in our second point, considering the result of this act, what happened when the Son of God became man. In the first place, he became a human being. He became a human being. He became one with all those who had fallen into sin in Adam. He became just like them. He became a real flesh and blood human being, a son of Adam. When Adam fell into sin, he destined every child of his and every grandchild of his and every great-grandchild and distant descendant to be conceived and born in sin, in the sin and corruption that had entered his own heart and his own life through his fall into sin, except for one. Every child and grandchild and great-grandchild and the whole human race except one. Remember that even before God spoke the curse to Adam and Eve in the garden, He made the promise when he was speaking to the serpent. He made the promise that the Savior would be born of the womb of the woman. So, the Son of God became man. He was truly born of a woman. Mary was his mother, just had God as, as God had promised. He became life like us in every respect, yet as Hebrews 2 says, and as this confession communicates by saying he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was without sin. He was like us in every respect, yet without sin. And so he was the one that had been promised already at the very beginning. The one who would be born of the womb of a woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would save God's people. And so Christ is the hope of all humanity, of all those who trace their lineage back to Adam, of all those who share in Adam's fall. That took us right back to the very beginning of the Bible. Well, as the history of redemption moves along as the story of God's work moves along in the Old Testament. The focus, as you probably know, narrows. It narrows from the whole world, in a sense, to the people of Israel. And even within the people of Israel, to the line of David, the line of the great King David. David, of course, was the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. He wasn't as rich or as prosperous as his son Solomon. But, It was not Solomon's devotion and heart for God that became the model for all the kings of Israel and Judah to follow. It was David's. It's always David that all the other kings are compared to because he was the greatest king. And to this great king, David, God had given a promise. He had said, from David's line would come a son greater than David himself. 2 Samuel 7, if you're looking for a reference for this promise. From David's line would come a son greater than David himself. This son would rule on God's throne forever and ever. He would establish God's kingdom on earth in a way that even David 
had not been able to see or accomplish. The kingdom of Israel had become great under David, but the kingdom would expand far beyond the borders of Israel when this great son would come. God even said of this king, I will be his father and he will be my son. And so from the line of David would be born the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel for their salvation. And so the hope of God's people and the hope of the whole world became bound up as Scripture progresses through the Old Testament, became bound up in the birth of a son. The one promised to Adam and Eve. The one promised to David. A son born of a woman who would at the same time be the Son of God. And so when the Spirit of God came upon Mary so that a child was conceived in her, carried in her womb and born from her, the promise of God was fulfilled. And the hope of the whole world and the hope of Israel satisfied. The hope, yes, of all those who would receive Him and believe in His name. John writes that in John chapter 1. After he says that the the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. John says that these things have been recorded, that these things happened, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. The hope of the world, the hope of Israel, born of the Virgin Mary. And if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life. So Christ was born for us and for our salvation. But how does that work, you might ask? What are the mechanics of this? How does the fact that Christ was born, why does that mean anything to us today? How do we connect up with that? And why do some benefit from Christ's birth and others don't? Why do some stake their lives on this teaching of Scripture while others spend their lives trying to undermine this teaching of Scripture? Well, it comes down really to one simple phrase. The very same thing that John said in, in, when he said that this is for all those who believe, who receive this by faith. It comes down to this. By faith, we are united with Jesus Christ. That's how this works. By faith, we are united with Jesus Christ. We'll spend some time unpacking that so you can see what it means in the context of Christ's innocent conception and birth. As you think about your lives, if you go back in your, your personal timeline, your personal history, you can recall many things that have happened to you. You can recall many reasons for rejoicing. You can recall many reasons to be embarrassed. Many reasons for thanks. Many reasons for repentance. And your timeline goes all the way back to your birth. And so considering the birth of, of the Lord causes us to go back in our timelines to to our point, the point of our birth. The point of our birth. 
Now, there's so much, of course, that's wonderful about the birth of a child. Babies are are born into this special and fragile state. They're they're tender. And although they're barely able to move or do anything, we love them. But there's also another reality about babies, tender and lovable as they are. And that's the reality that David confesses in Psalm 51. Where David says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now David is writing Psalm 51 in the context, the terrible context, of having committed adultery with Bathsheba and of having killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah. After that all transpired, David wrote Psalm 51. But David isn't saying, everybody else is fine. I was sinful at birth, unlike most other people. No, he's identifying with everyone else and saying, surely we were all sinful at birth. But you know that David, of course, also isn't saying, you know, before I was even conceived, I was an adulterer and a murderer. He wasn't doing those things at that time. But he does acknowledge that his sinfulness, his corruption, was already present then. And just like human parents give birth to human children, so every child born of a sinner has been born corrupt. And it's that corruption, it's that sinfulness, it's that state which later in David's life reveals itself in his adultery and his murder. It's that state which in everyone's life reveals itself in the sins which they commit. Sins of arrogance or or laziness or anger or every sin. And so we are conceived and born in sin. It's for this reason that Christ was born without sin. See, if you've sinned, and you are a believer, you can seek forgiveness from God for that sin, can't you? If you know what you've done, then you can go along that road of repentance. You can humble yourself before the Lord and ask, Oh Lord, forgive me for my sins. If you keep falling into sin, you know that you can keep calling on God. You can ask God to to send His Spirit to strengthen you so that you can fight against sin. These are wonderful realities. Wonderful realities of the Gospel. But they don't cover everything, do they? These are wonderful realities, but even as these realities continue to happen, you know that there's more to this story. There's more to your sin than just that anger or that adultery, or whatever that sin was that you committed. You know that it's not just that sin that's the problem, it's the whole well from which all your actions spring. It's the source of that sin, which is your corruption, your sinful nature. You continue to sin because sin and corruption doesn't start with a bad decision. 
Adultery doesn't start with a bad marriage. Anger doesn't start because someone else was was making you get angry. Murder doesn't begin with a troubled youth. These sins go back. They go back farther and they go back deeper. They go back right to our birth. To how you were born. That's where these sins spring up from. To how we were born. We were conceived and born in sin. Perhaps you've heard of this song. It's a song that raises a lot of controversy. The song by Lady Gaga. The song, Born This Way. Of course, she's communicating something different. But there is truth to that phrase, that you were born this way. Because we were all conceived and born in sin. And so, brothers and sisters, here's the gospel. Here's the good news of the virgin birth of the Son of God. What you and I are completely unable to, to undo, to go back in our, in our past and, and change, Christ was born and died for. What you are completely unable to go back and to change or to atone for or in any way to have an effect on, Christ, the Son of God, came down, was born in human flesh, and died for, to deal with. Romans 8, chapter 3. God sent His Son to be a sin offering, to be a perfect sin offering, one who had never sinned, who was not conceived and born in sin. When you believe in Jesus Christ, then you believe that not only His innocent death, but also His perfect life, all the way back to His conception, is applied to yours. That's what happens when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of justification. You're justified when you believe in Jesus Christ. Picture picture a timeline of your life. We've been speaking about a timeline. I've been trying to draw one up here this whole time. Okay, your birth is over here, and, and your timeline stretches along. Picture a nice illustrated timeline in your mind of all the things that have happened, a baby over here and growing bigger and the various things that have happened. That That's your personal timeline. It's got the events of your life. There's a problem with your timeline, though. Last week we talked about total depravity, the teaching that if sin was blue, we'd be blue all over. What's the problem with your timeline? It's all tainted blue, all the way back to its very beginning. This is what happens when you believe in Jesus Christ. When you entrust yourself to Him as your mediator and Savior, then in God's sight, in in God's judgment, as God looks at your timeline, at, at you, there's this change that happens. It's not change from the moment of your conversion, so that when you believe, everything gets good after that. And it's not changed when you're, when you're really spiritually on fire, when you can feel God's presence and you're praising Him with, with all of your might. It's not just those periods of life that are changed. It doesn't change color when you, you get really good at this Christianity thing and you, you're obeying God and you're doing all the right things. That's not what changes the color on your timeline. It's blue from sin. And that timeline that stretches all the way back 
to your conception and birth. But that timeline is changed in God's sight, in God's judgment, on the basis, not of yourself or anything in your life, but on the basis of Christ's work. When you believe, it's instantly changed from all tinted with blue and sin. Begins to shine, or suddenly shines, white as snow. White as the righteousness of Christ's life all the way back to his conception and birth. Because Christ was born and died and lived in between in perfect innocence and holiness, when he becomes your righteousness, when you abandon your own righteousness, when you say, I cannot save myself, I'm a sinner from beginning to end. But he is the sin offering that God sent. Then you are declared by God the Father to be perfectly righteous. Your timeline is instantly changed. And so when Jesus Christ came to earth to become our mediator, he didn't pop into being as a mature man. Instead, he was born. He was born so that his perfect birth could stand in for our corrupt birth. His innocent conception could redeem our sinful conception. He was a sinless baby to become the mediator and savior of all those who were born sinners. In his grace, God has given these promises to us. And not only to us, mature adults, those who are able to to understand what I'm saying to you this afternoon, but also to the children of believers. God's covenant in which he he calls believers and their children into relationship with him means that children are born with Christ as their mediator. As surely as they're born into covenant relationship with God. But as they grow up, and we were reminded of this, this, this this morning, as they grow up, their parents have the duty to instruct them in these things. This morning we heard that they don't have this innate knowledge. They have these promises given, but they have to embrace them as they grow up and as they become able by faith. By faith. As our children grow up and their capacity for personal and living faith grows, they must embrace these truths. They must. That's our prayer that they will. Children, you're listening this afternoon. You have to believe that Jesus Christ died for you. And you have to believe that Jesus Christ was born for you. In fact, we must all believe this. We must all believe this. All humanity fallen into sin and Adam is called to believe this. We must all believe this because there is no other salvation for those who are conceived and born in sin. There is no other salvation for those who are conceived and born in sin than the Savior, Jesus Christ. Because there is only one who was born and conceived in perfect innocence and holiness. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. 
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.